My name is Seth Sutherland. I've worked on shows like Superman, The Flash, Batwoman, Legends of Tomorrow, and you're listening to Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Hello and welcome to Neil Before Pod, the podcast that is going to solve all the world's problems just one at a time. I'm your host Craig and we are here to discuss the final, final season of the CW show Supergirl. We've covered it for the entirety of its run, more or less, and now we're here to talk about it at the end. Joining me for this discussion is the one and only Supergirl superfan, Andrew. Hello. Hello. Absolutely delightful to be here, even if it was a bit of a bumpy ride from the future. Yeah, it's always a bumpy ride from the future or from the Phantom Zone or wherever. I don't know where is anybody. That's where Chris is right now. He's in the Phantom Zone. I sent him there because he didn't finish the show in time. That's what he gets. Well, he should just display more focus and, de- and dedication on his assigned tasks. That's what happens at Neil Before Pod. If you don't nut up, you get sent to the Phantom Zone. That's what I do now. Zero tolerance. It's the only way they'll learn. It is the only way they'll learn indeed. So let's just start with our usual customary spoiler-free thoughts on the show, on the final season. What did you think of Supergirl's final season? Overall, I actually really enjoyed it. There have been times where I've been a little bit on and off regarding just how much I've been enjoying Supergirl. There have been times I loved it and other times where I can just kind of take it or leave it. But generally, throughout pretty much the entire season, it really did kind of become appointment viewing for me. And it was something that I was really looking forward to seeing rather than each new episode just be something I felt like an obligation to watch. Like some other show in the Arrowverse you might care and name. Should we get the kick in early? Just <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's impossible to, to have any, any kind of conversation without coming back to that. But yes, it's infinitely more enjoyable than a show riding lightning, shall we say. <laughs> yes, I like the final season as well. I think Supergirl is pretty consistent in what it's about, especially at this point. Plotting, you don't watch it for the plotting because it's nonsense. You watch it for the characters, and I think they stuck to that quite majorly in this final season. I think they definitely front-loaded characters. They concentrated on getting them to a point where we can wrap this up and they really committed to knowing what they were about, really, I think. I think the writers are maybe aware of the show's limitations and work around it in that way, but I do wish the plotting could be a bit better thought out. Some episodes you're just like, what are you even talking about? (laughs) people brainy will say something and you're just sure whatever let's do that i don't care <laughs> yeah i'm sure that all makes sense if we kind of think about it or if we look up all the words in a dictionary nah it doesn't but it's just like yeah whatever that'll deal with the plot issues so then the characters kind of go back to addressing their feelings yes so let's just launch into spoilers let's go to the spoiler zone we might as well because there's no point in lingering and dancing around stuff bring it let's do it captain luthor I'm ready to do Neil before pod. Let's start by talking about the way they structured the season. So we had a two-arc structure in effect. We had the Phantom Zone arc, and we had the she's out of the Phantom Zone arc. Yeah. And the Phantom Zone arc was something they threw in because they had to, because Melissa Benoist was pregnant. So they had to write an arc that allowed her to film in her own terms. Or I think it was after she had her child when they started filming but it was they wanted a bit more scheduling. I'm not sure. One of the two. They basically had to keep her separate because other actors needed to conform to her scheduling rather than her trying to conform to the show's scheduling. 
I think after five seasons of a moderately successful, in terms of ratings, television show, that's fair enough as an expectation from the lead work around me. I don't really think it's that much to ask, especially when a large proportion of the show's popularity and also identity is pretty much down to her and her portrayal of Kara. So I think asking for a few modest concessions so the show can continue, but also she's actually able to continue living her life while doing so, it's not unreasonable. And I think they made the best of it as well, because that arc was largely about what she represents, both to herself and to her family, or the found family that exists within the team she has in the show. Because there was a lot of content in the Phantom Zone about her almost losing hope, or about why she maintains hope in dark circumstances. And they juggled that quite nicely, I thought, because there was points where she almost lost it, or there was points where she was bringing hope to others. So that was a really great touch in terms of this is what I'm all about and here's what happens to me when I'm tested. That It's not something we'd seen before and it was good to see. Because yeah, quite a lot of the issues that the show has addressed have been external points which Cara has addressed and fought against and attempted to rectify. But it's far more unusual to have a plotline that specifically revolves around her and the position that she's in and who she is. And I think that introducing a plotline like that is a pretty good way of starting a show's final season because it allows it to be a bit more introspective and to focus on exactly what it is that makes the show what it is as well as the woman who ties it all together. Yeah, and you can equate it to other Arrowverse shows that have attempted something similar because you obviously have the storyline involving the other characters trying to puzzle out the situation that they're in without her. Arrow did that in season three when Oliver was believed dead for a number of episodes. Mm -hmm. Arrow could do it without losing the lead character because they had the flashbacks. So you could have Oliver largely absent in the present day because you can always cut to the flashbacks. It means you don't have your leading man off screen for any length of time. So that works. The Flash... They kind of tried to do it when he was stuck in the Speed Force for a single episode. <laughs> and the, the team were unravelling without him. And in this, you had the Phantom Zone plot, so you could cut back to her throughout. And obviously, we talked about it at the time, but it's something that we wish the Flash could have done. Let's see how Team Flash operate without Barry. You get to see it for like five minutes, and they don't operate well without him. They suddenly lose all their competence somehow. Any competence they still had, they somehow lose it. Mm-hmm. Whereas Team Arrow, it was about who's in charge now? Who's going to take the lead on these things? Who has the skills? And they all had the skills. It's just they weren't cohesive because Oliver wasn't that guiding hand that helped them come together. So that really worked. And in this, it was about we can come together without Kara because of what she did for us, for what she represented to us. And Jean was the voice of let's not fall apart here, whereas Alex was essentially acting as if Kara was dead and she had to live without her. I think that's largely a response to Alex having spent so much of her life, and even also in recent years, one way or another, losing people who are close to her. And because her relationship with Kara is so close, and she's possibly the closest that she is with anyone, in some ways, arguably, even more so than Kelly, I think the idea of losing her is just something that she felt she needed to accept as soon as possible because the alternative of having hope the car might be rescued only to have that dashed would be more than she could actually bear. Yeah, and it's quite funny that in this arc, because they were the first show essentially back after the pandemic or during the pandemic, this pandemic that we are still in, 
<laughs> regardless of what people might want to tell you. There's a lot of sitting around the tower with the core characters talking about their feelings because they can't go outside, they can't have yeah. loads of extras, they can't do very much in that respect. Well, I interviewed a director. I'm just going to plug my own interview. It's my podcast, I'll do it. And why not? Yeah, yeah. I interviewed a director who directed one of the episodes of Supergirl and he was talking about that was the meeting. Standing sets, core characters, as much as possible, as little extras as you can manage. This is your limitations to tell your story. And instead of that being a limitation that made the show worse, I think they used it very well. Other than the fact that we don't know how National City's coping without Supergirl being around because we can't cut to anything out there. <laughs> the Catco stuff disappeared for a while, despite the fact you had Nia covering for her in theory there. But that's something you hear about and don't really see. I think a good benchmark for how well a show deals with real-world issues that affect its production would be like if you're watching it and somehow unaware of the external problems, how much would you notice that things were different? Would what's going on like seem strange or out of context? And I think because of the kind of show that Supergirl is, one that deals a lot with conversation and emotion and introspection, I think it was able to handle it pretty well. Yeah, you'll be able to revisit it in a few years or someone might watch it for the first time in a few years and not really know that COVID was a thing and not see any gaps in what we're doing. We've seen production issues crop up on these shows all the time in terms of we've had to change things because of this real world issue. For example, with The Flash and Ralph, <laughs> how they hilariously got around that last season. But I think with this, yeah, obviously you know there's limitations because we're living through that at the moment. But at the same time, I think they turned them into a bit of a strength in some ways. Other than the fact is, I mean, it's problems the show has anyway. We're not getting a sense of how the city is coping with this. There's nothing about Catco in this at all at the moment. Basically, the characters are spending time in the tower or in nondescript locations fighting CGI creatures. That's all they're doing. So there is an emptiness to the outside Phantom Zone stuff that is noticeable. It certainly was noticeable with the general dynamic of the show having changed, but I think that overall they did about as good a job as they could have with it. And I'm not too sure if there was much more in a practical sense that they would have been able to do to get around it. No, especially not early on. They had the two problems. You had the pandemic restrictions in filming and you had the Melissa Benoist can't interact with the main cast for a while problems running up against each other. Yeah, but even so, with those two combined, I was certainly still enjoying what they were doing with the show, even if it did somewhat limit the scope of, of what we've generally come to expect of it. Yeah, the Phantom villain was awful. It's the usual villain plots where they are just standing around saying things and those things don't really mean anything and then they go and try something and it doesn't really work or it does work to some degree and I found myself not engaged by the whole phantom stuff at all because it was just this thing that was going on and they even mentioned that this could create a global pandemic. They did the same in Batwoman with the bats where this could create a pandemic and superheroes aren't in our world to stop these things, unfortunately. But the Phantom plot was just very dull. I was interested in the emotional stuff that was going on behind it. It just wasn't good. Which in itself can be applied to quite a lot of the show in general. Yeah. And in the Phantom Zone, Kara has no dead parents. She started off the show with two dead parents. Now she has no dead parents. I don't think in any kind of comic book and certainly superhero medium the issue of 
dead parents is ever going to go away because they're such a staple of the genre and it's, it's something that's just become unexpected. I think that it ultimately transpiring that the character still had both the parents was kind of a neat subversion of that, even if it wasn't intended to be one. Yeah, it's just more that they spend so much time in the history of the show with her remembering that loss because Clark's different because he doesn't remember Jor-El and Lara. So... He has no connection to them. It's just a shame that he never knew them. Whereas Kara does remember her parents. And then to find out, oh, none of them are dead. Okay, cool. That's amazing. I think it devalues or risks devaluing some of what they did in the earlier seasons. I do agree with that, though. I think the notion of managing to get a parent back when you thought that you would have lost them forever it certainly is something that has quite a degree of emotional impact. Though I think it's something that could have been explored a little more than it actually was. It was more just kind of like a kind of a matter-of-fact revelation. It's like, okay, here's your dad. He's actually fine. Is Jason Bear just a bad actor? I'm pretty sure he's just a bad actor because he's just so bland in everything I've seen him in. It's entirely possible, yes. In Roswell, I used to watch that. Just so one note in that. A film called Dragon Wars, which I don't recommend ever watching because it is dreadful. He's pretty bad in that. Oh, God, I forgot about that. Yeah. That was such a tedious film. Yeah, it really is. He's also in the second season of the Roswell reboot as a military guy or something like that. I can't really remember. He's pretty bad there too. And he's pretty bad here. And I get the idea that when people are playing Kryptonians, they want to be almost regal in a way, especially when they're members of the House of L. And (laughs) they want to be regal. If you look at Angus McFadden in Superman and Lois... He tried to do that. It didn't work, really. So there is always that emotional distance that exists because they are trying to essentially act like monks. It's a bit like in the Star Wars prequels with the Jedi behaving like these passionless monks. They are a bit like that. The episode, for example, where Kara had that fantasy where she was attacked by whatever it was and she had that fantasy that she was her adult self on Krypton. She was behaving like that, too. So they have an emotional lobotomy. On Krypton? Are feelings not a thing on Krypton? Which is weird for someone who's so passionate as Kara is. I think it's an extension of the way that Jarell has generally been portrayed. The way that he is often presented in the Force of Solitude in various movies and TV shows as someone who runs purely on, on, on intellect and absence of, of, of emotion and this is everything you need to know about, about this and you must not like your feelings, cloud your judgement kind of character. And... As an extension of that, it seems to have been decided somewhere along the way that that's just what all Kryptonians are like. Yeah. Rather than just it being specific to his character. Yeah, but Zorel was... Well, he was alright, I suppose. The whole idea was that Kara was to bring him hope. That Again, it was to highlight her personality and how inspirational she can be, which also rubbed off on Nixley as well when she was introduced in there and she appeared to be this cast off as well who had been sent there under bad circumstances and then obviously she was revealed to be a villain as it went on but Kara gave her hope as well which is kind of hilarious because she motivates Nixley to pick up her revenge mission once again in (laughs) in some ways I mean she was always going to do that if she ever got out but at the same time Kara helped her realise you can get out and uh, oh yeah it turns out you want revenge Uh, okay that's iffy. Yes, and you're kind of going to destroy the world to do it. Oops. Well, I wasn't to know. Oh, well. Just a problem I have to deal with now. Whatever. It's fine. But she gets out of the Phantom Zone and everything's all right in the world. I do think the Phantom Zone arc felt like it went on 
for too long and it was a little bit repetitive as in every episode it's we're still here we're losing hope we've got hope again we're losing hope we've got hope again we found some weird facility somewhere that we can open a portal oh i can't open the portal because nixley's gonna escape i'm stuck but don't worry my friends will get me out yeah there, there is only so much that you can do in a setting which is specifically designed to have a single purpose and then just to to keep laboring the point that the longer you're there for then the more the more you lose hope until eventually no more than one of the specters there's only so much that you can do with it and to keep reiterating the same points without any kind of progression or development then yeah it, it does get still touch boring yes Although the final episode of that arc was really good with Team Supergirl on the ship and all facing their fears, that works really well. Because you set up Nia is still insecure about her powers, still dealing with the unresolved issues she has with her sister, still feeling like she doesn't measure up to her mother's example, all that stuff. And then you had Lena being afraid to look into the situation around her birth mother and so on. I think all the fears that were raised in that episode worked really well. It was a very neat way of bringing to the fore all these issues that each character is dealing with without it seeming really forced or laboured. It was certainly clear that the problems that each of them has that the, fan- that the Phantoms brought up was something that they were each going to have to have to deal with. But those kinds of things being brought up would generally require about half an episode's worth of build-up and at least three new characters drafted to illustrate the points and then each of them being explicitly explained exactly what it is and, and how it affects them. But in this way, each of them can be like manifest and portrayed and introduced in a matter of moments. And I really, really like the, the, way, the way that it was done. Yeah, and the structure was good as well. We got it looping back to the same point and then you would follow another character and they would do their thing and then it would all come together at the end. I thought that was quite effective. Yeah, and having everything happen simultaneously was a good way of establishing why they all weren't rushing to each other's help, that being the kind of team that they are. I do wish I had Chris here for this because he is always fascinated by the additions to the tower that we've had since it was introduced. Now it's a (laughs) spaceship, apparently. It's just the thing that it is now. We just have to accept it. I know Martian technology and whatever, but it started off with Jean having an office in this building, it seemed. Then he owns the building, and now he's installed a spaceship. (laughs) I'm just kind of accepting that as a wonderful comic booky type thing. Is this like, yeah, why not? Let's just fling fling (laughs) it in there. Yeah, why are the nascent Justice League hanging around at Star Labs when there's a spaceship in the one in National City? (laughs) Or the Hall of Justice, I suppose. They'll be going back to that at some point. Maybe Kara never will. We'll never see her again, maybe, but we'll talk about that, whether we don't see her again. Yes, or Jefferson. Yeah, well, they'll definitely see Jefferson. You can't get rid of that guy. I'm surprised he didn't turn up in this. I was like, what are you doing here? I don't know. Felt like I was needed. Go away. <laughs> we don't even know who you are. We don't know why you're here. That'd be a great running joke where just Jefferson just keeps turning up in different places and everyone wonders why he's there and kind of who he is, really. Yeah, I, could, I could go for that. Yeah, be a good recurring joke, but it's not to be. But yeah, the tower's a spaceship. It's hilarious how they just drop it in there as if it's like, <laughs> cool, whatever, you'll just go with it. Yeah, it's like, oh, by the way. <laughs> I did like the... Star Trek analogue they made, though. They made a direct Star Trek comparison. Yeah, well, honestly, I think when you've got any kind of spaceship where a spaceship was not expected, if you're not making some kind of Star Trek reference or joke, then are you even trying? Yeah, of course. You have to reference it. Why not? It's great. Strange 
development, I suppose, that that's a thing. And that they never used it again since then. Yeah, Bob, I think that's just another one of those things to be expected. Is that, well, yeah, we don't really need to go into space again, so we don't really need to use it as a spaceship. Well, there was a couple of times where they could have went into space to do stuff in the rest of the season when they had to destroy a bunch of satellites, for example. Yes, but it, it wouldn't have been nearly as dramatic, though. No, of course not. But yeah, the whole point of the Phantom Zone arc is to reaffirm what Kara represents both to herself and to the other characters. And it worked. It did that. It definitely did that. Yeah, absolutely agree. And I really liked how, how the show then developed from her time in there. It wasn't just kind of immediately forgotten about. Once she got out, it was an experience that stayed with her, uh, not just immediately cast aside and then onto the next problem. Yeah, and we'll um, definitely come to that. The two episodes that are worth commenting on within that arc are the two time travel ones, where they go back to high school Cara and Alex once again. It was really good to see those actors again. It was really good. Oh, it was quite funny how the... Yeah, you know the kid that died the last time we did this? Because his Christ is not dead and it's Kara's boyfriend in that time period now. You just have to go with it. That's the annoying thing in post-crisis in general for me is I feel like I don't know the history of this universe anymore because it's just changed. Yeah, and they seem to have got into a habit of making alterations just for the sake of it. Yeah. After crisis, with the whole universe being rebuilt, and practically anything that's happened can now be retconned and just chalk it up to being because of crisis. But it's, it's, almost, it's almost getting to the point where the writers are starting to go slightly mad with the power <laughs> and just using that, that excuse to make these random alterations that in the long run really don't matter. And I was wondering, okay, why... I forget the kid's name now, but why change that? Kenny, would it? Uh, yes, sure, why not? I should have put that in my notes, but I didn't. That shows how much I care about this problem. <laughs> but I actually thought it was quite good because and we can kind of talk about the approach to Kara's romantic life that the show takes in general. But in this particular case, it was, yeah, she seemed to have quite a rosy situation back in high school in the altered timeline or the altered universe or whatever you want to call it. She was doing a bit of heroics, a bit of investigative stuff. She had a boyfriend. Alex was supportive of her, and although actually resentful of her in some ways, which really worked to give you that complexity. But I really like how they did that whole them splitting up thing because they are just two young people that are going in different directions in their future and they've come to realise that they're not on the same path, so they part on those terms, which I really liked. It was a very mature approach to ending that relationship and the expectations he had for Kara when he made the Smallville barn as their base of operations <laughs> because he assumed that she was going to be staying where she wanted to leave because she wanted to spread her wings so to speak that was good stuff i think they did that really well because you can imagine just in the old timeline she has no friends she has no connections really so yeah leaving for her is very easy but in this it's she's torn between her connection to kenny because she likes him and wants to stay on one level but on another level she feels like she can do more so she leaves yeah, and I really like that they portray the characters as actually accepting this, that it was the uh, best for both of them, regardless of what they were to each other. Because I think in that kind of situation, then too often a show like, will manufacture some kind of drama to create a rift between them, to justify them not wanting to have anything to do with each other ever again, to then retroactively justify what why they wouldn't be in each other's lives when previously they were really important to each other. And as I said, it was a surprisingly mature way of dealing with it. And I'm quite surprised, but also glad that it was done in that way because it was so much more satisfying. And also kind of like life as well. Yeah, it was, it was very 
understandably real, I think. And I'm surprised that Kenny didn't turn up in the present day at any point. I'm surprised they didn't do that. I think they just maybe decided that he just wasn't important enough or that his reappearance wouldn't have made enough of an impact. Despite how important he was <laughs> to her. <laughs> how formative that relationship supposedly was. It was a good arc for Nia as well because she had that whole, I could phone my mother, but then she doesn't. It was an interesting one because I'm, I'm surprised they didn't lean on that. She makes a phone call to her mother and talks to her. I think that was good that they didn't do that because that's what I was expecting to happen. It's the idea that, no, me doing this isn't going to make me feel any better. It's going to complicate things, if anything. Yeah, and that's the temptation that they, they have with any kind of time travel. There's always the belief that applying your future knowledge to this past would somehow improve things with Nia in, in particular, with the kind of path that she's been on. Then it's like her past is something that she needs to deal with in, in the present. And yeah, just mucking around with it in the past would only complicate things and wouldn't actually improve her life in any way. Yeah, and then she has to find another way to resolve those issues. She gets to speak to her mother in a dream, which worked. That helped her contextualise some things. And she actually works with her sister. It was a really good back and forth they had. Because Maeve still resented her for becoming Dreamer because she prepared for this for her whole life. And I liked how they treated that with that level of complexity because Maeve resented her. And that's not Nia's fault. Nia didn't ask to be Dreamer. In fact, she actively expected that not to happen. But she became Dreamer and then there was nothing she could do about it. So it's not as if she could just give Maeve the powers, which she might have done, actually, Certainly at an earlier point. But Maeve uses every opportunity to just rub her nose in it. It's like, look at all this knowledge I have that you don't have. And there was moments where, well, I'm kind of impressed by that display of power you just gave me there. But she was constantly just calling her out on her lack of knowledge. And it's like, well, I haven't studied this for years. I've been muddling through ever since that I got these powers. So I need your help rather than anything else. And then Maeve even brings up that you're not a real woman thing again. And as far as I'm concerned, making that kind of comment, it completely obliterates any kind of shred of sympathy that actually managed to muster for her because there isn't anything to be gained from making a comment like that because it's just pure spite except it's part of Maeve's frustration that Nia became Dreamer and not her but it still doesn't justify it and especially when Nia has presumably been dealing with people saying things like that to her for years and to have a family member not support her in that way just because she wants to take out her own frustrations on her is just an absolutely revolting way to behave for sure yeah and i don't like Maeve. i think the character is very obnoxious and unlikable but i also appreciated that they went there because in the arrowverse intolerance doesn't come up an awful lot it does in things like black lightning and periodically on supergirl they've done it particularly around aliens but even with what was her name maggie with maggie they did that a little bit as well with her being mexican her heritage being Mexican, they mentioned building walls and all that stuff. But it's not something that they tend to do. Characters don't seem to be intolerant or have trouble with massive life shifts. So it's good to see that that is a problem that Neo encounters and having it hit so close to home for her as well. And then when they resolve that tension, they don't resolve it, resolve it. Nia makes it clear to Maeve that, no, this is your last chance here. I'm extending Olive Branch because I want you in my life as my sister, but I'm not going to tolerate the way you're behaving. I want you to support me and I'm going to give you this chance. And she keeps calling her out on different things. We lost our mother. We should have been there for each other, but you ran away. So that resentment continues up until their final interaction. You don't see that develop in any way, but it's in the background that 
okay, they're going to have a bit of a tense relationship, possibly for the rest of their lives. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And as I say, she was a very unpleasant character, and they're kind of glad to see the back of her. It is a shame they don't really pick up the whole Nia now understands, or is starting to understand how to interpret dreams. Because you see her having dreams, but I don't think her interpretation of them is anything beyond the surface like we'd seen before. So that's one thing that, I've learned this, but we're failing to show you that she's actually learned it as often happens on these shows. Yeah, because it's just like a superficial thing of like this object in the dream means this, or like seeing this person means this, and this thing happening means this is going to happen. It isn't especially complicated. You're just having visions. You're not really dreaming anything. (laughs) Exactly. And there was a great deal of potential to explore how dream interpretation would work for somebody who has basically precognitive powers through them, but it just wasn't, used at all. No. But her relationship with Brainy was still adorable. It was great to see. I think the way that progressed was really nice. Yes, that's one of my favourite parts of the show. Absolutely, I love them together. Yeah. One thing I actively hated in the finale, though, was I have to go into the future and merge with a big brain. That's a point of tension. They have to separate. Fine. They have higher responsibilities that they're called to do. Fine. He leaves. Cool. She has to live with that. Okay, I'm on board with that. It's devastating, but I'm on board with it. Then he comes back and he's like, I've decided not to do it. Okay, what does that mean for all that stuff that you said before then? Is it fine? Is that because I do need to return to the future to avoid being a living paradox and to ensure the survival of your race? Or is it something that can be completely ignored because anything can happen in the future because the future isn't written yet? Exactly how present-day actions affected things in the future always seem to be altered just depending on the needs of any given scene. <laughs> Never mind the plot line. They just seem to go with whatever would be most impactful in, in the moment and completely disregard any kind of continuity that may have been built up regarding the issue. Well, if you think about it, Barry's making a mess of the future all the time. The legends are making a mess of the future all the time. Whatever decisions Brainy's making are making a mess of the future all the time. I get why you would introduce that point of tension. I've got this higher responsibility. I have to go back. If I don't go back to the future, this descendant of yours that Wynne calls his best friend will never be born. All that stuff. But the fact he's just, yeah, it doesn't matter. I've decided that being with you is more important than all that. What does Monel have to say about that? Screw you, Brainy, I've got to live in this future. I think the intention of it was to have Brainy make a decision based purely on emotion. Yeah, follow his heart. That had nothing to do with intellect or probability. But it also completely robbed what seemed to be their final separation five minutes previously of any real meaning. Plus, they could have just gone down the route that they did in Doctor Who when Clara identifies that she has to go back and die at some point. It's like, yeah, I'll go back at some point. As long as I go back at some point, it's fine. Whereas Brainy's like, as long as I go back within the next thousand years, it'll be all right. Yeah, because it's just one of those neat loopholes that means the problem doesn't actually need to be resolved in any way. I'll wait till Nia dies. We'll have an open relationship so that her family line can continue. And then I'll go. <laughs> but that would require cohesive plotting. And we know that that's not the thing on this show. It never was, never will be. That's not what we're no. here for. Super no, Girl. we're definitely not here for that. But good relationship. It's great to see. It was great to see them just bounce off yes. each other. Again, the character dynamics are all pretty adorable and something that I ended up investing in which I didn't think I would was the Alex and Kelly relationship because I never liked Kelly when she first appeared mostly because she just showed up and bandied around psychology terms and berated people for not (laughs) doing what she said and then there was always a bit of a holier than thou attitude to her even though she was being helpful she was being forcibly helpful and I think they toned that down a lot especially in the relationship with Alex and I think she became a real source of comfort 
for Alex here. Although it's funny how in the first arc of the season, she didn't know that Kara was Supergirl because I just assumed that she did <laughs> last season or whatever. Yeah, actually, because her... Learning that Kara was Supergirl wouldn't lead to any kind of dramatic personal revelation. And it's something you just assume would have been mentioned to her at some point. Because what would it being kind of pertinent information that she could presumably be trusted with? Alex works with Kara and Supergirl. Her brother worked with Kara and Supergirl. The people that she interacts with on a daily basis work with them. She knows Jean. She knows he's an alien. So... Why not? It's just one of those things. They do that with William as well, which we'll get to. But it was just very weird when it's like, I'm going to tell Kelly the truth about Kara. It's like, what? You didn't do that before? I just assumed. And you would have to look back to see if they actually directly addressed it at any point or whether it's suggested. But you had these scenes and I just assumed that everybody knew. Certainly Kelly knew. So I guess it's the handling of the secret identity thing in this show is just the opposite of what you're expecting. You're surprised when people don't know rather than surprised what they do. Exactly. It does often seem in a show that people with secret identities can often be a little bit haphazard with how well they actually keep them and the efforts that they go to stop other people from finding out. And sometimes it just seems like it's so obvious that you think it would be something just generally known that people just don't talk about rather than these big secrets that need to be kept. Yeah, and I'm surprised that William didn't find out. Though they did address that to some point because Jean confides in him about being an alien and he asked the question... But how did you all oh, come to be working with Supergirl? And Alex is there. It's like, well, I used to work for the DEO or whatever. So that's why I know Supergirl and my sister at the same time. Let's uh, not question it. But you have these weird little bits where William's like, I'll look after Esme. Well, you all go to Alex and Kelly's bachelorette party. There's a joint party that they're throwing, which is not the point of a bachelorette party of them to be together. But never mind, whatever. It's still a great scene. Yeah. But he's like, yeah, I'll watch Esme. We'll use all do this. And then Kara's obviously going to be there. So I'm surprised he doesn't suggest can't Supergirl watch the daughter of all this happens? Is Supergirl coming as well? Again, it's almost, we're playing these scenes as if he does know, but also it's clear that he doesn't know because we keep referencing it. So it's just this awkward, weird middle ground that they've had to strike. It's like he is conforming to the behaviour that the show requires with regards to the identities, but thinking it through with the information that he is seen to have, then there are different ways that he would, the things that people do and say that it just isn't. Yeah, it was a bit weird. I liked William this season, though. Did quite well with him. I think him being embedded with, as they call them, the super friends. I still call them Team Supergirl, but never mind. Whatever, semantics. His embed with them was good because it really drove out this accountability arc and he was able to bring up certain perspectives that no one else on the team can have. So he talks about, yeah, you did this, but you didn't consult the people and now you have to answer to them. And it's this back and forth about, no, every action you take is something that people will react to. And I don't think they did as much with it as they could have, but I liked that it was there. And I liked that they were using that as a bit of a barometer for morality in some ways, because superheroes in these shows, they just do stuff. And again, it's something they did in Arrow, where it's, we're now agents of the city, or we have to be aware of how the city might react to our actions. They did that very well. The Flash, it never seems to come up. He just does stuff and, oh great, there's another anomaly in the sky or whatever. Things have been torn apart and no one's answering for it. Whereas in this, in Arrow and this, they draw attention to the fact that we have to answer for our actions here. They don't really do much with it, but it's there. Yeah, that's just it. Even though every decision and action that team makes is obviously for the greater good and to protect people, it doesn't necessarily follow that ordinary people will see it that way. Because quite often all, all, all they would see what would be the repercussions that their actions have, which for some people might not be quite as 
positive. And in fact, that the choices that the heroes have made have led to these consequences is something that they should have to have to deal with. It's not like when the problem appears, they just swoop in, save the day, and, and that's it. Things happen as, as a result of this. The actions have consequences, and that is something that does need addressed. It's something to point out in Batman v Superman, isn't it? Every act is a political act, and that's the whole thing about Superman in that particular continuity. And it's a similar sort of thing here, except that people are less ambiguous over whether Supergirl is a good thing in this world. The Dome episode was a good example of here's the impact your actions have. And Kara's like, yeah, but we have to keep a monster from destroying a nuclear power plant. Isn't that important? It's like, yeah, but it's also important that people are separated from their children and can't get to work, that kind of stuff. So it's that the micro level thinking that don't always get a sense of in these shows. And you don't really get a sense of it here because there's no case study as such. There's no character that is directly affected by that because everybody except Andrea is connected to the main crew at this point. Yeah, and that is a potential problem when you have an ensemble who do everything so closely together. And they, they do all tend to end up thinking in much the same way, and having similar reactions to things that need to be done. Yeah, and William gives you that perspective, which is good, but it's one of those things that I guess you need to have that happen over an entire season that's not the final season. So it almost feels like we've wanted to do this for a while, but we've never been able to, and now we have to cram it in before the show finishes. Yeah, it, it did seem a little bit rushed. It was like it was an issue that we kind of meant to address, but we kind of forgot about <laughs> or didn't have time for it, and now we just kind of, kind of drop it in there so we can say that we did it. And then you have William as a de facto member of the team, which I think worked. I like the way he bounced off different characters. And I was quite moved by his death, actually. Not the aftermath of it. They kind of forgot about it in the last couple of episodes. We'll do a funeral later or whatever. We'll keep his body on a slab in the tower, but we won't really address this to any great degree. But I thought the way he went out as a hero on his own terms, wouldn't give up his sources, wouldn't capitulate to Lex's demands... And the fact that it was Andrea's fault because she was the one that leaked that journal against his wishes and put his name on it. Lex just killed him out of spite as well. The thing that made it more effective as well, whenever you see Lex do stuff, he usually does stuff by proxy. He'll hire someone to kill someone or he'll be wearing his mech suit or he'll get out of it in some way. So the fact that he just shoots him with a gun makes it feel more real and more visceral in a lot of ways. Yeah, and also more personal. He did it and it was like, that's for leaking my journal. It's what he said. It's just... <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's just like pure malice. Yeah, there's a lack of elegance to it, whereas Lex is usually very elegant in the way that he acts. It's, it can't be traced back to me, whatever. And I suppose this can't be traced back to him, although it can because now there's a video of it. But at the same time, you would expect him to get Otis to do it or someone. Or he'd just be left incapacitated after the explosives were planted all over the tower to blow it up. Yeah, so it was quite a moving moment. And it weren't as eye opening for Andrea in theory and all that stuff. Andrea, who was relegated mostly to nuisance value throughout the season. Whenever she would show up, it was, God, not her again. That's usually my reaction. It was like she was just there to just be an obstacle to inadvertently prevent Kara from being Supergirl by reminding her that, yeah, you actually have a job to do that you've really not been doing for quite a while now. And yeah, that does motivate Kara to resign and focus on just being Supergirl because she feels that she can't live both lives simultaneously, which in itself is quite an important plot point. But it can seem like that was really Andrea's only real purpose. There wasn't any true plot-specific need for her. She was just kind of there. And the handling of it is a bit suspect as well, because you always have this where Andrea says, do this, I want you to do this. And it's all this, it's all about clicks. I don't care about the truth of the story. I don't care about any of that. I care about clicks. I care about reach. I care about whatever. I want Catco to be at the top of the list rather than 
forth from the bottom or whatever it is she says and that's yeah is this really important but yes as a business it is kind of important and it's one of those things we all have day jobs or some of us do you're always getting told to do stuff you don't want to do in fact me going to my day job i just don't want to do it right but i've got to do it (laughs) and then people tell me to do stuff and i'm like i can't be bothered with this but i have to do it because otherwise i'll starve and have nowhere to live because i won't be able to pay for it but Kara's like it's so unfair that andrea is asking me to do this and i'm going to try and find a way not to do it no your point doesn't make any sense there you are employed to do this whether you agree with it or not you have to find that middle ground and you have the stuff where william says this is a breach of my integrity i don't agree with you doing this and putting my name on it, that kind of stuff. But at the same time, he would do his job. And then you get this stuff where Andrea's like, you're one of the best reporters I've ever seen. You've won a Pulitzer and whatever. (laughs) At no point have I ever gotten the impression that Cara is any good at her job. In fact, the show provides evidence that suggests the opposite, repeatedly. There are very, very few examples of Cara actually being a journalist. Because it is obviously just like having a job as part of her cover. And not something that she had much interest in actually doing. But she always talked about how it's her life. And even when she quits, it was either Lena or Alex said, but being a journalist is who you are. Is it? Is it though? Is it really? I know the show wants me to think that, but it's never shown me that. And you can't just have someone just make a blanket statement like that without any kind of previous action and experience to back it up. And there's two glaring examples in the show that I can think of. There's probably more, but there's two that stand out to me of her being actively terrible at her job. Actually, there's three. One of them is that TV debate that she does with Ben Lockwood, where he's racist and comes across better than she does because she has no idea what she's talking about. She's just hiding behind blanket morality without actually addressing any of the points he makes. So that's a bad example of her doing her job or a good example of her being bad at her job. It's actually painful to watch that yeah it's like i'm kind of siding with the racist here (laughs) i shouldn't be i understand your morals but he is making practical points about how the world has been impacted by the mishandling of aliens being on earth and you have nothing it seems to be like just because you fundamentally disagree with the person's whole ideology doesn't mean they can't be more intelligent than you the other example is when she interviews that alien that heals people and she writes this piece about how he's a radiant saint yes. and then it takes 10 seconds of someone else googling to find out he has an illegitimate <laughs> child and that's the kind of basic background check that would be one of the first things that any kind of journalist would be taught to do you do research on your subjects yeah i understand her desire to see the best in people and find the best in people because that's who she is she likes to do that but at the same time she ignores facts for that reason, or just doesn't find them out. So that one is particularly glaring. I think if it had been, oh, that was really hard to dig up. I think it was William who was just, no, I did like five minutes of Googling and there it is. There might not have been William, maybe Nia. I can't. I don't know if William was in the show at that point. It's someone else who just did two minutes of research and immediately found it out. And the third example is in this very season, the prison reform, prison corruption story that they did. This completely tone-deaf prison corruption story where Carol was like, but I wrote an article about him and he was fine. He was all about finding prisoners' jobs. And it took seconds to find out that he was corrupt. <laughs> in fact, it was obvious. <laughs> Obviously, it's the economy of characters. You know that as soon as Kara sits opposite him, they paid this actor, so therefore he's going to be up to no good. 
that he's going to be behind this thing because there are no other characters in the story. But again, it's just her being bad at her job. And it's a poor handling of the issue because there's no awareness of it in general. Kara taking things at face value. She just doesn't understand the issue at all. And they bring in the allegory for social injustice fine. And you have the Orlando character who also happens to be black because it will be black people that will be exploited by this kind of corruption. Again, that's fine, it works. But Kara saying, I know how you feel. I'm also an alien, okay? But you're white and attractive and a superhero and you present as human in a secret life that you live. So, no, you don't. You have no idea what these people are dealing with. Exactly. Now that I'm saying Orlando's not attractive, but at the same time, Kara is privileged and she has no concept of her privilege. And that could have been a story about Alex and Kara understanding their own unconscious biases. But it doesn't. They support the authority figures, even though they're wrong. They're talking about, we need to change the authority figures rather than get rid of them because they suck. Exactly. And which is why in, in that plot line, it needed to be Kelly to actually bring it to their attention. Actually, it's saying, no, you don't understand this. You literally have no concept of these people's lives. You don't know what they've been through. You don't know what they need to do to survive because it isn't something that you yourself have ever had to experience. And their suffering isn't something that you can understand. And that's why you're completely blind to it. Yeah. I know what it feels like to be an alien. No, because you just put your glasses on and pretend to be human. So you don't. Exactly. Because as much as he is able to pass as human, then any kind of anti-alien prejudice, something that in her everyday life she can just sidestep and not have to directly engage with. She can hide from it, whereas others can't. Just poorly handled all round. It was a tone-deaf approach to the whole prison corruption thing. And I think they were trying to tap into the whole corrupted authority thing that's a big deal at the moment. They kind of did the police thing last season to an extent. And social injustice is something that the Supergirl show deals with quite a lot. And I think they did a much better job with the whole low-income housing issue in the following episode. It did seem like every episode following the Phantom Zone arc up until a point was, we're going to be tackling this issue this week and then we'll solve it and then we'll move on to the next one. (laughs) The climate change one, which we'll definitely talk about because that's hilarious. But in the low-income housing one, There's some interesting stuff in there about how Kara understanding how her platform can benefit people that need to be heard and need to be represented so she can use the Supergirl persona to create change. You get that cheesy public service announcement that her and Brainy do about eating your greens and how much reach it gets. That's (laughs) where Andrea's social media obsession comes into play. It's like, no, no, you need to learn how to play this because then you can really get your message across and you have to learn how to do that. I mean, Kara's not very good at it, but that's the idea that she comes to realise. Because then they do this whole anti-gentrification plot. And as always, they oversimplify the issue in terms of gentrification equals bad, because that's what we believe as Team Supergirl. But at least they tried with this other side of the argument, and it's a decent counterpoint about we're bringing money into the area, we're bringing jobs into the area. Okay, these poor people are still going to be stuck but also there are benefits to what we're doing. It's a very capitalist outlook. But there is at least a point being made there. And they don't really resolve it because Nixley tears the building down anyway. But at the same time, they had a go. It's more depth than they normally give to issues like that. Yeah, quite often with the social issues that the show brings up, they only really deal with it on a very superficial level. Usually in, in terms of, okay, this is how this issue is negatively impacting this demographic. But the fact that they actually took the time to explain how a other side would perceive it and genuinely believe that they're in the long run doing something good by displacing all these people from their homes, it 
indicates that the writers have actually applied more thought to it to better present it as an actual discussion that needs to be had rather than just a black and white issue of basic morality, which is how things are often treated, such issues. And then the building gets torn down, which renders it a bit moot. And the councilwoman ends up getting powers so she can be hit by Kelly, who's then guardian at that point. Again, they need something to punch because it's a superhero show, but at the same time, you almost had something there. You almost had a more complicated story about how Supergirl as a symbol can benefit people rather than Supergirl as a powered person can benefit people. Exactly, because it's more like what she represents rather than what she can actually yeah. do. And there were something there, but again, we need something to punch because it's an action-adventure TV show. That's what it is. I suppose in theory they were having Kelly fill that void. She's the voice of these people in that particular area. The setup was fine. I think the execution left a lot to be desired because you never saw her do that again. Anytime she suited up as Guardian after that point, she was like fighting Mixley or whoever. So you never see her as the, I don't know, like the friendly neighbourhood Guardian, so to speak, really, after that point. Yeah, and just as a brief aside with her as Guardian, her whole kind of gap as Guardian, it's a similar issue that had in Arrow when her Curtis was suiting up as Mr. Terrific. I thought it would take a long time to get her hair <laughs> like that. And certainly not something that can be done in the mere minutes of response time that will be required to, to actually kind of get out there and fight. <laughs> That's just, like, just like a stylistic niggle that I just couldn't ignore. Yeah. One time in the Arrowverse that I remember where they didn't overtly address that there's limited time here, but they addressed it to some degree. In season one of Arrow, when Oliver was using the grease paint instead of the domino mask, and it was in the final episode when he went to fight Malcolm Merlin, he didn't have time to do the grease paint, he just put on the hood and he left. It was a quick, this is more urgent type thing. So again, yeah, I suppose you could have had just Kelly show up with unkempt guardian hair at some point. Hmm. It's a CW, everyone has to look all glamorous and attractive at all times. Exactly. You can't look badass without being sexy at the same time. Yeah, pretty much. Although I will say that I did buy Kelly's motivation for becoming Guardian more than I ever bought James's motivation for becoming Guardian, with his motivation simply being, well, all my friends are superheroes. Yeah, exactly. So I want to be one too, because otherwise I'll just feel useless. Yeah, whereas hers is like, I'm going to put on a mask and help out this specific marginalised group of people. And they did really well with the whole racial angle as well. And that conversation she had with Alex at the end of the episode, where Alex says, I can't hope to understand what any of this means for you specifically, but I can be there and I can listen and I can help you through it. I can be that pillar for you. That was a great approach to that. We've seen it in different shows where it's like, no, no, I completely understand where you're coming from here. I understand how you feel. It's like, no, you don't. That's the point. But Alex's point there was, I don't have to understand how you feel. I just have to understand that you feel it. Exactly. So I think too, too often with issues like that, they are presented as problems with solutions, things that are there to be fixed. It's not things that are just going to go away. This is prejudice that exists, and it's something that certain people will, will never experience because of what they look like. And it isn't something that they themselves can fix. So all they can do is just to support the people who it does directly affect. Because sometimes that is the best that you can do. Yeah. Like I said, that scene was great. And I really like the relationship, looping back to that. They become parents, which I didn't expect to happen, especially in that way. It's, oh yeah, we're just going to take this little girl now, which is something that we're going to do apparently we're not really going to discuss it we're just doing it that's it we've done it now and she's a little alien and she has mimic powers and that's a problem that we need to deal with i liked esme actually she's one of those child characters that just didn't annoy me i think she was used very well yeah because it's always a risk when you have kids and especially kids that young they can just be really obnoxious and irritating but esme she's absolutely lovely she just became representative of everything 
Alex and Kelly want in their lives. They want to have someone to love and to protect, and also with her being an alien, then that's an aspect of people from different worlds trying to bring together. It, it just seemed a little too quick how Alex came almost violently protective of her. Just because I imagine that kind of bond is something that can only be forged over time, and not just something that suddenly materialises because because I got this little squidgy blob in your life who depends on you for protection. But her presence certainly provided a whole new dynamic to their characters and also their relationship, and I'm really glad that they decided to incorporate it. Yeah, although I did buy into the whole difficulty surrounding when Alex became protective of her because she had an idea in her head of what being a mother was going to be like and I think she unrealistically expected it to be perfect from the first minute. And it wasn't. It was difficult and she didn't know what she was doing and she made a lot of mistakes. She was trying to push Esme into doing stuff that she didn't want to do. Like, we need you to master your powers. We need you to do that. Give her some time to adjust. It's not going to happen overnight. You need to train her, but don't push her. And Esme's reaction to that is very standoffish. She recoils and she feels like she's expected to be something that she can't be. It's that bit where it's like, you should just take me back to the group home. This isn't going to work out. No, that was devastating to hear. Alex has alienated her, pardon the pun, in a way, <coughs> because she's pushing her into trying to master her powers. Why don't you try and control Kara's super hearing? And then she hears unpleasant stuff and she's like, why would you do this to me? That's horrible. And it starts to look like it's not going to work out for a while. But I really like that they acknowledge the difficulty of that because it's not that you're taking this baby it's not a baby well she's a young girl so she's had life experience she's had bad life experience and there's baggage there that she needs to deal with so Alex was almost expecting Esme to conform to her ideal of what a daughter would be and I think Alex had to learn that Esme was someone that needed guidance needed help but also had issues that needed to be worked through at a measured pace I thought that was great. Kelly was much more dialed into that side of things. That makes sense because that's her job. But also she didn't idolise motherhood in the same way that Alex did. So she was able to approach it from a bit of a distance. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And and having those two different perspectives on what Esme needs is pretty much how two parents raising a child often would address the problems. Because parents aren't always going to agree on what's best for their kid. And sometimes if you're so single-mindedly focused on this belief that your way is the best way and the only way, then it prevents you from seeing any, any alternatives. It's exactly that that Kelly provides to Alex and makes her a better parent because of it. And it smooths itself out over time and you end up getting these scenes where Esme just is very clear that she's part of a family and she loves that. She just relishes the fact that she just has so many people to interact with. I thought her scenes with James in the final episode were amazing. The camera and all that stuff was so wholesome and, and lovely. And one thing that really hit me was a scene on the bridge when she's being held by Nixley. And then when, as we see, all, all these suit-up heroes striding towards her, she's like, you came for me because she's someone who has been abandoned her entire life and she fully expected that to happen again. And she just resigned herself to that was what was going to happen. I think it might have only been in that moment that she was able to actually hope and accept that this might actually be her family now. Yeah, that was really effective, yeah. There's one plot point, I suppose, around her that I didn't buy into. When Nixley approached her and was like, come with me, I'm a friend of your mother's. And she's like, yeah, cool, okay. It didn't strike me as a decision that Esme would make because she doesn't trust people. That's part of her whole deal. She's been abandoned all her life, as you said, so she doesn't trust people easily. Also, did no one explain who Nixley was to her? Did no one show her a picture and say, if this woman comes up to you and tries to take you away, 
do everything you can to get away from her because she's bad news. So I didn't buy into that. It's not that she would never get kidnapped. I knew that was going to happen. But the fact that she didn't resist it didn't strike me as being something that she would do. Yeah, it did seem a bit out of character, though I, I just wrote it off as being a requirement of the plot because there wasn't any time to make her abduction any more complicated. They wouldn't have had to change much, though. All next would have to do is you're coming with me and drag her and then what can... As me do. Yeah, but I think with the attempts to portray Nixley as having at least some degree of compassion, then I think they didn't want her to be seen forcibly abducting a child. Even though that's basically what she was doing. <laughs> oh, yeah. It stood out to me because everything that I knew about Esme up until that point suggested that she wouldn't go so easily or she wouldn't believe Nixley because she probably has people trying to be disingenuously nice to her all the time. And she should be wary of that by that point. She was wary of it around Alex. Hmm. Yeah, just one of those things, I suppose. It's the needs of the plot versus character motivation stuff, I suppose. But Esme was great. She's one of those great child characters that they brought in. And I like the way she interacted with everybody. Cara, Aunt Cara, and Grandpa, <laughs> John, and all that stuff. I loved all that. And yeah. I, I really liked when Cara was trying to keep the secret from her. She showed up in, you know, the glasses and normal clothes. Her sister has the same powers as Supergirl. Oh, God. <laughs> no, that's out of the bag. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, we, did, we didn't think that one through, did we? Yeah. <laughs> like, damn it, she's not stupid. Okay, recalibrate, fine. But you have to keep it secret. <laughs> that was really good. Enjoyed that. Since we mentioned Nixley and you talked about her having compassion, I really felt like they were onto something with Nixley and as a final villain with depth, I think she was a good choice, but it's annoying that they abandoned it at the end because there was all that stuff about revenge, her maybe learning that that's not the best way forward. There was the suggestion that she was going to be redeemed at some point. And then at the end, she just teamed up with Lex and fired beams at them until she got sucked into the Phantom Zone again. Yeah, it was like, boom, done. Never given them another moment's thought. Because there was all those gauntlets and stuff and they were all about teaching her a life lesson. I actually liked the MacGuffin hunt that they had in the second half of the season because it told us a lot about the characters that were experiencing these gauntlets in terms of this is how you solve it. And the fact that Kara couldn't solve one in the actual end resolution was it's because you hide yourself. That's why you can't pass the courage gauntlet. But with Nixley, there was, she had to accept that there was nothing she could have done differently in terms of the, the whole vengeance side of things. And because her desire for vengeance was such a significant part of her motivation, the fact that she was actually justified in wanting revenge meant that she was someone I could, at least on some level, actually sympathise with. Because even if you don't agree with the methods she was using to go about attaining it, you can certainly understand the emotions that were driving her to do so. And, and as you mentioned, that's exactly why it was such a disappointment that really didn't come to anything. Because it was like any kind of character development or or even redemption that she could have had was tossed aside as an afterthought. Yeah, it's very weird that they spent so much time endearing her to us in some way and then they just chuck it aside at the last minute. Because they were building to something, they definitely were. I don't know if there was constraints that resulted in that arc having to wrap up in a quicker way than they expected or whatever. But I, I like that final gauntlet. The truth totem. Bloody totems. There's always a totem, isn't there? There's so many of them. Mm -hmm. There's elemental totems. There's emotional totems. It's just crazy. Totems for everything. There's paragons of these types of things. But anyway, she had to confess her truth, which the truth is that she didn't want to be alone and that she wanted justice, that was a truth that she was living and that she understood and that others understood about her. But she 
confesses that she used to be alone, doesn't want to be. She wants to be confident that those around her won't betray her. That's what she really wants. And that allows her to pass that gauntlet. And in a way, that lets her see Lex for who he really is as well. Although the thing with Lex is they seem to be developing him as in he is capable of these connections. And then it turns out he's not. He wasn't really honest about it at all. The way that I took it was that I think that Lex did actually love Nick Slee insofar as someone like him is actually capable of it. And I certainly think it tracks that narcissistic megalomaniac would actually need to uh, meet a woman who is virtually omnipotent to actually <laughs> see her as an equal to him. I think that because he sees her as someone who is matched to him and she's someone that he can see some kind of future with, I also accept that he is too blinded by the driving belief of his own unparalleled brilliance for him to actually be capable of experiencing genuine love as most people would understand it or actually feel the emotion because love is something that you feel simply being with someone not as a result of what it is they can do for you and he's as surprised as anyone isn't he he's like i love her and i hate everyone so he doesn't quite know what to do with it as well I actually did quite like the way that he was portrayed in these final few episodes. Because he was a character who kind of annoyed me previously, which I'm sure I talked about to some extent in one of the previous podcasts. Definitely, yes. Perhaps several of the previous podcasts. I've always found arrogance to be an incredibly obnoxious emotion, both in fiction and real life. And in particular, in people who have this overwhelming need to make sure that everyone else knows just how smarter they are than them. But with his goal in gathering totems and restoring Nick's lead to her full strength, then it was something that, whether or not it was kind of conscious of, it was actually doing for someone else, which is a bit of a departure for him. Because in other circumstances, everything he's done has always been, in one way or another, been about him, about what he wants. And in a way, this is that as well, because he wants to be with her. But at the same time, his ultimate drive is to ensure that she survives. And that just made him a bit more interesting. And so I was just less endlessly bored by listening to him pontificate on screen. The thing about this version of Lex is that he's comic accurate, or at least accurate to some versions that are in the comics, in terms of the, the fact that his intellect is greater than anyone else on Earth, more or less, or it seems to be. But also, I'm, I kind of get annoyed by the fact that they always resort to he wears a mech suit, or in this case, a thing on his arm that he just shoots people with, or they give him powers during crisis, or various other things. So it's like, okay, you've got the smartest guy in the room here, but you're just turning him into a villain that they're just throwing beams at, which is kind of boring and kind of limiting. But the thing I do find interesting about him is that every time he's been defeated, it's been his own doing. It's because he can never be satisfied with anything that he has. Even last season, post-crisis, he admitted, I have everything I want. And then he learned about Leviathan. Like, oh God, I can't have this flying about because I have no control over that and I want control over everything. So he's always reaching for these unattainable things. He's always trying to have everything and that ultimately engineers his downfall because he doesn't account for how he can't ever have everything. And it's something his mother keeps telling him about. It's something that Lena keeps warning him about and it led to his death before. It led to him being, well, not put in prison, I suppose, but almost being put in prison. I actually love that trial episode where he just goes on a rant about how much contempt he holds for everybody else that isn't him. And then they let him off. <laughs> oh, I'm a rich, powerful white guy. I didn't account for that. That's surprising. I thought I was going <laughs> for So I just went for it. But it turns out they hate me and that's enough. It's a very chilling indictment of the way the world is. But yeah, at the time of recording, we just had that, what's his name? The clue of all charges. Despite the fact that that just shouldn't have happened. <laughs> it's prescient in that way for 
Supergirl to have done that, but also it's not anything new, is it? People are rich and they're Sadly untouchable. Not. Everybody hates them, but they're untouchable. Blanking on the guy's name, but it was it was only the other day as we record that they announced that. Rittenhouse, that was it. I was trying to think Timeless, and then I got there. <laughs> it, was like, it was like a TV show that I always watch, Timeless, Rittenhouse. Cool, got there. Yeah, so he was cleared of all charges, despite the fact that that's ridiculous. Same with Lex. Potentially in the history of this universe, he did the plan that he did in Superman 1. The whole big earthquake thing and turned the sun red and all this stuff. But somehow he's still walking free. Oh no, he wouldn't have done that in the post-crisis reality, will he? Because he was beloved by everybody when he ran the DEO. So yeah, ignore that. That's another bit of the history that I don't understand. But never mind. But I like that. I, I thought that was a really chilling development. And everybody was like, oh God, I can't believe that happened. And, he, and the fact that he couldn't believe it was great as well. Yeah, because we're ever at a point where things like, oh, okay, this is it now. And then you walk away, it's like, oh, okay. What now? Yeah, now what do I do? I'm going to go to the future and meet some fifth dimensional imp. Here we go. Job done. And then I'm going to return to the present and get some totems or not. And then I'm going to end up in the Phantom Zone. Pretty sure they did that to keep him on the board for probably appearing in Superman and Lois. It wouldn't surprise me. It'd be interesting to see their take on him in that show because it would be more measured, I think. I think so too, yeah. The general point of Superman and Lois is that it's a little bit more down to earth insofar as a show about superpowered aliens actually can be. It's not quite as in your face with the messages that it's presenting or the plots that it develops. I think they're dealing with Wax in a way which means that he can actually return at some point, but in the interim doesn't actually need to be dealt with or even addressed at all is probably the most efficient exit that they could have had for him. Definitely. Now for the other Luthor, Lena. She is descended from witches, apparently. That's the thing that she is <laughs> Just because. And I like the whole magic versus science thing and the fact that her birth mother went down a dark path and she's worried that she might go down a dark path, but Kara helps her out of that. That was all pretty good stuff. I actually quite liked that. They didn't really do much with the magic side of it. It was just the same stuff over and over again, largely, but it worked well enough, I think. And her having to question everything that she's understood about the way the world works, because magic is different. Well, personal suspicion was that she was given these magical powers to develop, to continue justifying her actually having a place in the team. Because any kind of issue that requires intelligence or technology to deal with would be something that Brainy could easily fix. And so there was the risk of her very presence becoming redundant. It also provided uh, another facet to her character by giving her this personal history to explore that she didn't have any idea about. And also because she's someone who did briefly turn to the dark side, then to learn that that her mother went down that same path, then it's obviously something that she's going to be concerned that she might do herself and end up making the same mistakes. And even though that did come a bit out of nowhere, I really, really like what they did with it and where they took it. Yeah, and there's also being a Luther isn't ideal because it's this darkness associated with it. And it turns out her birth mother, not ideal either. Although she was a good person that made a mistake rather than being a bad person as such. So there was all that and it was interesting and I really like how they did the Cara-Lena friendship over this season as well with Lena essentially giving her some tough love sometimes, just telling it like it is or how she sees it, which isn't exactly necessarily the rosiest of points of view but it's something that Cara needs to hear at different points. And also just a throwaway comment, a thing that I particularly liked was uh, having Lena's birth mother being Irish <laughs> it retroactively justifies any time that Katie McGrath's accent slipped a bit which was often yeah. very often 
For sure. It was good. I don't really have a lot to say about Jean this season. He was more of the supporter of figure rather than having much to do on his own as such. Any scene where he just gives people a bit of perspective is always good. And being the grandpa of the team works really well. It's just, yeah, there was a very limited story to him. There was that bit where he had to accept that there was nothing he could have done to stop his family from being killed. That was a, the main thing, I think. It was certainly his biggest personal revelation. But again, it was it was just kind of fleetingly mentioned and didn't really come to much. And he's going to have a son, so he has a legacy to look forward to. And he gets to yeah. reshape the DEO in any way he sees fit. So that's something he can do. Because that's how government organisations work. <laughs> yes, it's yeah, current launch to a single individual to operate the department uh, without complaints, oversight or interference. Which kind of runs against the whole accountability piece that we're running for the entire <laughs> second half of the season. We have to be held up accountable, but we're going to just do what we like. It's going to be a beacon of peace because we said it is, and that's going to be enough. That's fine. This also comes after Kara tried to drain the sun, but we're not going to really cover that. <laughs> that really came out of nowhere. <laughs> it really did. Like, and that's another reason I would have liked what? Chris to be on this, because his reaction to that would have been something to listen to, for sure. One of these days, yeah. I'll record his reaction and share it on some future <laughs> thing. Because it was this whole, okay, we're going to fire solar energy through you, lens it through the satellite. Fine, I'm okay with that. It supercharges the Kryptonian. Fine. I kind of thought they were going to end the show with Kara having to give up her powers. The way I saw that going mm, was yeah. they were heading down an all-star Superman route. So you have too much power. You're going to get torn apart if you don't release it. She releases it, she ends it. As a normal person, that makes a choice for her. I'm glad they didn't do that because that would have sucked. But that's where I saw it going. <laughs> but then they said things like, you can absorb this much energy, but it will render the sun useless for six months. Hang on. Humans have built a satellite that can drain the sun for six months. And Kara can absorb that much energy with apparently no consequences because she comes to the realisation of, this is wrong. We can't be doing this. But it's with like two seconds to go. Where did all that energy go? It wasn't the countdown ends and it all goes in at once. It was gradually going in. So what? <laughs> That's the only question. I was like, what? It's the classic. We haven't thought about this. We're just not going to address this in any way. But that was dumb. It was just so dumb. You've absorbed most of the energy, but you don't have it anymore. It's not a light switch. But it took time. That was the tension that it was going to take time. And then afterwards, it seemed the principal reason for backing out of it was the fact that uh, attempting to gain too much power is, is what they're fighting against right now, so they can't win by doing the same. And not, if I do this, it will cause a nuclear winter. Also scaring the people, that was another thing. But they got over it pretty quickly, as in within minutes. I just assumed that it was just because everything was just so incredibly emotional and intense, and they just kind of got swept up with it. Yeah, but it was just weird that the public were like, Supergirl, don't do this. This is horrible. This is scaring us. And then 10 minutes later, we're going to rally behind Supergirl. Did you forget what happened 10 minutes ago? Apparently you did. Forgiveness takes time, apparently, but 10 minutes. That's all it takes. <laughs> okay. But I did like the whole hope and love and courage and everything being drained from the world and there was no colour on people. I liked that. That was a nice little visual trick. Yeah, I really, really liked that. And when those aspects of humanity were restored with Kara's incredibly inspiring speech that lasted for 15 seconds, <laughs> the way that people were looking at themselves, it was almost like them being drained of colour. It wasn't just a stylistic effect. It was actually like a physical manifestation of their very humanity being eroded and then having that restored to them it made them suddenly feel whole again it was a really fantastic way of trying that 
Yeah, and it was a catch-all speech. It was a quick speech, though, which was good, I suppose. It was all clunky and messy. The fact that they wrapped up that plot so clumsily, it was almost expected, I suppose. But there were some really grim moments during that. There's a bit where Alex is fighting the... It's not the real parasite, it's just a manifestation of parasite. And she dodges out of the way and then says, no touching without consent. Sure. Yeah, okay, it's a valid point, but not one relevant to the current situation. Yeah, and then when, was her name, Eliza? Helen Slater shows up with a shotgun. Because apparently she now uses shotguns. That's the thing that she uses. <laughs> and it's you'd think in another life I was a Kryptonian, only in the movies. What? Okay, yeah, I get the reference that you're making, but in context, that exchange doesn't make sense. I mean, we've all seen Smallville. We should be used to it by now, but yuck. It's so yeah, just grim. It was such an awful moment. It was good seeing Monel and so on back. They got as many people back as they could which was nice. Monel didn't really accomplish much other than essentially putting the whole notion of a romantic connection between them completely into bed. Just, no, this can't happen. I'm going to be in the future. So, uh, yeah. Because I kind of thought the show might end with her going to the future to be with them as well. Yeah, which would have also been terrible. Yeah, so I'm glad that they got away from any of the bad stuff I expected to do. But that's essentially why he was back. And he was also back for a bit of fun. James had a meaningful return. Wynn had a meaningful return. It was great seeing those characters come back for the big finale. I know they're to battle against enemies like Parasite and Amazo and Red Tornado, who can hopefully all be realised by CGI to make the choreography much more straightforward. And Overgirl as well. Yes. And again, who completely had a mask on so she could be portrayed by a stunt woman. Yeah. They weren't really there, obviously. They just kind of vanished once they got defeated, which... Yeah, okay. And I wasn't really watching it for the spectacle as such. I kind of stopped expecting decent spectacle from Supergirl for quite a while, I think. So the fact that they just wrapped it up and then got on with what we were really there to see was really good. Because the bulk of the final episode, because I remember after Lex and Nixley, who get sucked into the Phantom Zone because they're afraid, what's it, hubris hides fear or something like that was the yeah. point. But I don't see why the Phantoms would all take them and then just leave. Again, it's neat. It has to be neatened up and we have to get on with the rest of it. I remember I checked how long was left in the episode and I was like, whoa, half an hour or something. Like quite a long time's left in yeah, this episode. Yeah, <laughs> And also, in terms of the kind of spectacle that the show can portray, as far as I'm concerned, it reached its zenith during the fight with the League of Superheroes soundtrack by Bon Jovi. <laughs> yeah, that was good. It couldn't get any better than that, really. No. I wish they'd had a moment like that, actually. They had an episode called I Believe in a Thing Called Love. I can't believe they didn't use that needle drop in that episode in some way. One of those things I just thought wouldn't work or just forgot about, maybe. It was what I thought when I was looking at the titles. Like, Why didn't you do that? Licensing. Justin, whatever his name is, wouldn't let them use the song because he's a dick. I don't know. Sorry, Justin, whatever your name is, if you're listening. Hawkins, is it? Yes. Doesn't matter. Anyway, moving on. So the finale was largely concerned with the wedding and wrapping up some character arcs and stuff. They wrapped up the long-standing character arc about Kara juggling her two lives, something she's never done all that effectively. She gets to a balance and then something upsets that balance and it keeps seesawing in different directions. She leaves Catco because she needs to concentrate on being Supergirl. She blames herself for being distracted. She feels out of step since the Phantom Zone, all that stuff. And then it culminates in this really great scene that she shares with Cat over the phone. We've got Callista Flockhart in front of a green screen and she's just going to speak over the phone. That's what she's going to do. Which, yeah, okay. I'm glad she was back. And I was actually surprised that she appeared in the finale because they hid that really well. It's one of those things they didn't reveal that was going to happen. It was annoying that they revealed it in the opening credits. Special appearance by Callista Flockhart or whatever. Yeah, that's really, really 
irritates me to do that, which I actually mentioned at least twice in the Stargirl reviews for this season. Oh, great. I know this guy's going to be in it. Brilliant. Excellent. Thanks for telling me. Put the credit at the end. Come on. Yeah, because the only time that I remember where they actually avoided that was in an episode of Arrow, when Oliver goes back to Leanne New and visits an imprisoned Deathstroke. In the credits, at the end, it had like special guest star, Manny Bennett, but it wasn't in the opening credits at all. Actually, like, leaving it as a, as, a, as a surprise. It's that easy to do. I guess it's possibly some kind of actor's contractual obligation to have their name displayed with a certain degree of prominence, perhaps. But just from like a narrative perspective, it's annoying to have these things revealed ahead of time. Also an arrow when they brought back Malcolm Merlin in the second season, they didn't have him in the opening credits of the episode either. Yes. You can do it. You can bloody do it. So do it. So I was like, I wonder when she's going to show up. And then she did. And I wasn't surprised. Well, I was surprised in the sense that they got her for the final episode because ever since she's been gone, she hasn't been back, really. I thought we got her fill of Cat Grant with her past self. It was really good. Yeah, actually. I really like how it quickly became clear that even though it's basically been like five years since we've seen Cat, she is exactly the same. Yeah. Catco was on sale, so I bought it. And because you're such a great journalist, I want you to be editor-in-chief. Like, what? Yeah, because that's how... Promotion in the reverse works. Also, as we've mentioned, Carr is a bad journalist, but never mind. And you mentioned to me like, the prime example of that was Ryan's career arc in Batwoman. <laughs> Going from homeless to bartender to CEO of tech conglomerate. Yeah, talk about a meteoric rise. <laughs> <laughs> That's the American dream right there, isn't it? It literally rags to riches. But yeah, Cat Grant's return, she was perfectly in step with what she was on the show before, dispensing the advice that Cara needs, helping her sort her life out. And I really like how they built up to that. But also, while I'm still calling her Kira, which I thought was a nice callback. Yeah, it was great. But this, this whole, this double life, it doesn't serve you anymore. I like the anymore part of it because you could kind of expect them to say, you should never have done a dual identity thing. It doesn't work. It never works for anybody. But the acknowledgement of, no, this did work for a while. Actually, it had its place in my life, but now it no longer does. And I have to make a change and I have to make a decision and I have to embrace something. I have to alter something because this doesn't work for me anymore. She can't abandon being a journalist because apparently it's who she is. And she can't abandon being Supergirl because, okay, I do believe that's who she is. But is there a way she can do both? And the way she can do both is by not hiding who she really is from anybody anymore. And that's Kat's advice. She says... Be open with yourself. Reveal yourself to the world. See if they'll accept you. And because you'll be rich, they will, probably. <laughs> because you're untouchable hmm. in that way. And Kat's like, I always knew you were Supergirl. Of course I did. I was never in doubt. But I really like that punchy piece of advice. And then she goes to put her glasses back on as Alex and Kelly are flying away in the convertible. And then she takes them off and leaves them behind. That was a really nice little moment for just with that simple action she was deciding to stop hiding who she is to just completely embrace everything that she is all at once yeah be herself a very very neat but also quite powerful way of portraying that yeah and i think the general approach to Kara as a lead in the show is quite interesting because it's quite unconventional for a show like this if you look at any other show in the arrowverse anything that's either still running or has finished in arrow Oliver became accepted as a hero. He managed to balance his life. He managed to get married and have children and all that stuff. Okay, he died. That's less than ideal. But this is still a happy ending for him in the way that Felicity ends up going to whatever plane of existence he lives on now. So that's something that's allowed to happen. The Flash, he's happily married, has his life together, all that stuff. Whereas Kara never had that. Her three major romantic connections over the course of the show were James... 
where they acknowledge that these two just don't have any chemistry, so that's not happening. Yep. Monel, which ended tragically, and then when he returned, was identified as something that no longer works for either of them, or could no longer work for either of them. And then William, which seemed to be heading somewhere, but then was quickly pushed aside when Cara came back from the Phantom Zone. William's like, I'm seeing someone. You're never going to see her. She goes to a different school. <laughs> what was it when he pretended he had a wife and he just found some picture on Google and just put it in a frame on his desk? Which is kind of weird. Why are you lying about having a wife again? I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. Who cares? Didn't happen. Well, it didn't because of crisis, but they were setting all that up and it didn't go anywhere. She never finds that balance until the final moments, I suppose. And you don't know if that balance will work for her. I suppose you could have another season that explores that. And it's interesting how Oliver reveals his identity to the public at the end of the sixth season, as does Supergirl. The only difference is Arrow has a season to explore it, or Supergirl doesn't. So we might get some tangential pickup of it if she ever appears again, or Alex will be appearing in that Flash crossover. Her appearance will have been and gone by the time that this goes up. Maybe she'll mention it. How's Kara getting on with being publicly outed? Oh yeah, it's fine. That'll probably be what happens. <laughs> when I'm editing this, I'll be able to look back on what I said here and think, oh wow, I was right or I was wrong. That's an interesting note for future me who's editing right now so hi future me who's editing right now don't merge with a big brain it's a bad idea but never mind so i found that an interesting approach and the general ending of the show as well there is a paradigm shift but it's not a seismic paradigm shift characters have moved on characters have changed Kara even acknowledges i'm at my sister's wedding right now she has our life together and i just do not i just don't have anything yeah. resembling any kind of togetherness in my life i feel lost i need to make a change i don't know what to do please cat grant tell me what to do and then she does but the show ends with game night something they do every day or every other day or regularly they're still in national city they're building the new deo i suppose Kara is working at catco in a leadership position she has outed herself as supergirl to the world she's being interviewed about that by cat grant herself presumably with the actors in two completely different locations filming split screen i'm guessing more than likely it's kind of that things have changed but things are also very much the same as they were and i thought that was a brave choice to end a show on because we've seen so many finales where it's and here's where this person ended up next and yeah that has its place but also i quite like the just because the show is ending doesn't mean these characters' lives as we know them are ending. And exactly. their personal lives work for them as well. It's not that everything needed to change. It's things needed to change, but not everything. And it's that final acknowledgement that they're actually people as well as being superheroes. That's always been one of the most compelling things about this show. Is In other Arrowverse shows, you still very infrequently see much of people's lives with their vigilancy exploits or any kind of situation directly related to them. Yeah, but is it just like a group of people who have become a found family and continuing to have lives together? And I really think that that was the perfect note to leave them on. Yeah, it was fitting. Because in just like one scene, it acknowledges everything that they are to each other, which for me certainly has, has always been the most important thing about this series. Yeah, I like the way that that ended. And I've always liked the approach to the lead. If you just look at it at high level, Kara's just kind of a mess. And she never stopped being kind of a mess. That's good, because as someone that feels like his life is also kind of a mess in a lot of ways, it's good to see that represented. <laughs> It's like, yeah, life is messy, and <laughs> you don't always feel like you know where you're going. I feel seen! Yeah, absolutely. Please, CW, represent me. Come on. I'm sick of looking at all these unspeakably attractive, successful people, right? I want to see a mess. And Kara gave that to me. 
all right, she's unspeakably attractive, but she's a mess. Her life is a mess in a lot of ways. <laughs> and that's good. It's good to see because she always had a lot to figure out and she never quite managed to figure it out. And I imagine if we ever got season seven, there would be challenges associated with Kara and Supergirl being known to the public as the same person. Don't know what those issues would be. They would certainly be there, though. It's weird that we'll never see it explored. Or if we do, it'll be just a offhand mention as part of a larger story that she's involved in if she comes back. Wouldn't be surprised if she doesn't. Yeah, I feel pretty much the same, actually. Yeah, and I forgot to talk about the climate change issue, but I'm going to talk about it now because I thought it was so hilarious. First episode after the Phantom Zone arc, Zor-El's like, I'm going to solve climate change. Here's a robot that will suck up all the rubbish in the Earth's oceans. This is how Krypton died. Krypton's oceans were the first to go. I thought the sun exploded, but okay. Who knows? <laughs> how does Krypton blow up? It just changes. Crisis, whatever. It doesn't matter anymore. But this is how that happened. And then they had to acknowledge that, oh yeah, we can't solve climate change, but here's a big trash golem that we can punch. So that's the next best thing. Yeah. Well, just a wonderfully random thing to just kind of drop in there. Absolutely. Yeah. So yes, the ending. To just come back to the point that we're already on, come off that tangent. I thought it was a good ending. I thought it was a satisfying ending and I thought it was an emotionally moving ending. I think the extended period of time spent during the wedding, dealing with the characters. I love the OG Team Supergirl scene with Wynne and James. We're like, yeah, I remember when we used to work out of that office in Catco and we were hiding from her. And then I worked for the DEO and then all this happened. And it was good to acknowledge the roots, where everything came from and where it ended up. That was all good. I quite liked that moment as well, actually. And also, it, it did actually remind me of my wedding. There was one point where there was like me and a couple of other guys. The guy who, who was my best man. We were at primary school together. I've known literally since I was like five. And this other guy who was at, was at like a, a different primary school in the same town, but we've known each other since we were small kids. And they're just us sitting at my wedding. One of them was already married with one kid and another one on, on the way. And the other one was, it was in a long-term relationship. And that was two kids of his own. But it was really just the three of us just kind of sitting there. It was almost like a kind of like a kind of culmination of life really just being able to think back on all these shared experiences we had literally over decades and the way that Kara, Wynne and, and James were to each other in that moment just really reminded me of it mm. That's kind of beautiful and it's good that someone else finally shares some personal anecdotes on the podcast so I'm not just confessing all all the time. The Craig revelation during this podcast is he thinks his life's a mess and that's why I relate to Kara because her life's a mess and so is mine so there we go. <laughs> Who'd have thought that Supergirl would be the character I relate to most in the Arrowverse? Yeah, that would not have been my first guess. Yeah, there we go. That's the way it is. I can't relate to Oliver Queen because I can't climb any salmon ladders. I can't relate to Barry because I don't think I'm that much of an idiot. <laughs> can I relate to Gary? Yes, we can all relate to Gary, can't we? In yeah. Legends of Tomorrow. What member of the cast of Legends of Tomorrow are you? Gary. We're all Gary. We're all Gary. Okay, so with this being the final season of Supergirl, as a final thing to talk about... What are your highlights of the full show itself? What do you, can you think back on in its long run and think, that was a really good thing they did? That's something that stuck with me. I realise I didn't put that in the agenda, so I'm putting you on the spot here. If it's any consolation, I just came up with it, and I've put myself on the spot. One particular thing was the introduction of Nia into the show. The way that she was initially portrayed was basically just a mirror of Kara was at the very beginning of the series. Someone overtly friendly and enthusiastic and uh, adorably klutzy and whatnot. The issues that were addressed through her being trans were, I thought, done really, really well. With the concept of the powers of Dreamer being passed down to female family members, that was something initially brought up separately from Nia's identity because it was revealed a few episodes previously that she is trans and then there's this offhand revelation that her powers are inherited 
through female family members. But those two things weren't immediately put together. So it was just making this tacit declaration that a trans person's true gender is the one that they identify as, rather than the one they were assigned at birth. And I really thought that that was a fantastic way of making that point. Yeah, the universe recognises her, so discussion over. And also the fact that I... I absolutely love her as a character. I, th- I think she's brilliant, and I always have. And uh, also like the fact that, that, that she's trans, it, it's not all that she is. It's just an aspect of her, it, and it's not everything to do with her. It's, it's not like she's a trans superhero, she's a superhero who is trans, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, that was good. So yeah, that's my biggest cut takeaway from how well the show has addressed social issues. They usually did it with a bludgeon, but they got the point <laughs> yes. across. Some of my highlights... I think some of them are more high level than remembering specific episodes or whatever, but the coming out story for Alex in season two was very well done. I know that I'm not quite equipped to comment fully on it because straight white male, therefore, what would I know about a lesbian coming out story? But at the same time, I've seen people write about it and talk about it, about how earnest it was and how real it was and how relatable it was there's an article that i'll put in the show notes if i can find it again which i'm sure i can it's a writer that i like who wrote for the av club maybe she still does i'm not sure but she wrote an article about how the alex coming out experience equated to her own so that told me enough about they got it right in that respect plus when i was watching it i thought it was very well done i understood what they were getting at and I could appreciate what they were getting at. It's like when Alex is unable to directly relate to Kelly in the final season over the race issues. You can understand that it's a struggle for someone and you can understand that there are difficulties without fully understanding the difficulties. So I understood, at least from an emotional point of view, how torn she was over this whole thing and the level of support she needed and all that stuff. So I thought that story was great. And I haven't seen any criticism of it other than people that don't like gay people, I suppose. How dare you put <laughs> well, this in yeah. our superhero show? Where are you going with those issues? <laughs> Why are you bringing politics into our superheroes? Yeah, everything's political now. Don't want to get political. Social justice warriors, blah, 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 all that. All that garbage yeah, that people nah. spout. Which is why I don't go on Twitter or any social media <laughs> where I can avoid it. Yes, which would probably do wonders for your mental health. You'd think, wouldn't you? That's <laughs> another confession that I'm not going to put yeah. here. So I, th- I thought that story was good. I don't know if you agree. Do you think they did it well or... Do you think they were preaching or...? No, I thought it was spectacular. Especially because it wasn't just I was coming out to her friends and family. It was, she was also coming out to herself. She was realising her own identity and learning to accept it and figure out what that means for who she is. And also love when she first tells everyone about it and is just met with this unconditional love and support. I just think that's what it should be like for everyone, but it's not the world that we live in. Monel's reaction was great. He was like, yeah, whoever, love whoever you like. That's what we do in Daxon. <laughs> we're also drunk all the time, but that's besides the point. <laughs> That kind of thing has has always been what this show is about, presenting humanity as it could be, not what it necessarily is, but showing how people might be if the best parts of them were allowed to come to the fore. Yes, and on a higher level than that, I think the word feminism can be interpreted in many different ways, but of course this is a feminist show, right? It's female leads, most of the characters are female, and they don't shy away from the fact that Kara as a woman has difficulties because there is just that gender gap in society it exists and it's a fact of life and it shouldn't be there but it is but they address it cat grant talks about perry white can throw a chair out the window but i'm not allowed to because i'm a woman and stuff like that they beat you over the head with it in those senses but it's also 
something that you really need to be beaten over the head with to, yeah, of course this is here, let's not be shy about it. And that's great. But also, I don't think they did it in a way that some feminist messages that I've seen in other shows, women are better than men type messaging that just seems mean-spirited, whereas this show is all about tolerance for everybody. Kara is great in her own right, but that doesn't diminish the men in her life around her. They can be great in their own rights too. And I'm trying to word my comments here very carefully because mm-hmm. God, I can so easily be decontextualised. And that's well after all be going on the internet. Yes, it will be. But I think the overriding message of this show is that everyone's important, everyone's special, everyone's worthwhile. And we're going to do this through the perspective of a female protagonist and we're going to acknowledge the difficulties she has. Being accepted as a hero, especially since she wears the same symbol as a man that does the same stuff she does, it's the idea that her mistakes take longer to go away. Whereas with Superman, he wouldn't be under the same level of scrutiny. They touched on all that. All the characters supported each other, propped each other up, made each other better. It's all about just the best of everyone. And I really appreciated that because, like I said, I've seen other shows or films where they just go down this line of women have been marginalised for too long and we're getting our revenge. That kind of approach. I don't really like that approach because it's not that it makes it hard to be a friend to women. But it's the wrong way to go about it, I think. And I don't think the show ever went about this in the wrong way. And it's that kind of inclusivity and all-encompassing compassion that is the core ideals that it's always been tried to present. And I think that because it, it does it from a perspective of equality rather than superiority, it makes it so much more easy to relate to and to enjoy. In one glaring example I can think of is in Dark Phoenix, where... Out of nowhere, Mystique says, the women are always saving the men around here. You should call the team ex-women. Where did this come from? I feel uncomfortable about this statement. Yeah, it was kind of glaring, but then pretty much everything about Dark Phoenix was kind of naff. Yeah, it's the least of its problems, I suppose. But it is a problem. I think but it just yes. stands out. It's one of those lines that when it's said, you're like, why did you say that? I don't understand why you said that. Where did that come from? A bit like the no touching without consent parasite illusion thing. Where'd that come from? Doesn't make any sense. There was a scene in an earlier season that was similar to that that worked better where Kara like elbows someone and she puts a little bit of her strength into it and she says, don't grab women, creep, or something like that. You know, it was a better version of that, I suppose. Yeah, because there are certain degrees of subtlety that you can make the same point with. And I think if people feel like they're being talked down to or being lectured, then they're more inclined to just disregard what's being said. Definitely. And one of the great things about Supergirl is that it has, by and large, managed to maintain that balance. Yeah, and some of my other favourite moments throughout the show are just any time you see the cast just cutting loose and spend some time together, karaoke night, game night, the various social stuff that they did. These just moments that are about nothing else but the characters enjoying being in each other's company. That's all they're about. So they're just being in a bar drinking together, just having fun. Yeah, it's great. Other shows should do more of that in this universe, but they don't. But it works here and the cast are so good together. Those moments always work. And I do have two episodes that I can immediately think of as being my favourites. One is the introduction of Superman in season two. Up until then, the ham-fisted attempts they had to <laughs> include him in the show without including him in the show. But the introduction yeah. of Tyler Hicklin's Superman, that first episode of season two, was such a great hour of television. And the other one is where Barry turns up in season one. That is my favourite episode, still. I think that's such a good episode. Yeah, I think mean, that was really, really great. The dynamic between... Barry and Kara, it was a joy to watch it. When Barry found out that Kara was an alien, it was not like he was like scared or freaked out. It was like, you're an alien. That is so cool. 
Yeah. And he's the voice of experience in that episode, which is something you never see from him these days. <laughs> he knows yeah. what he's talking about in that episode. He hasn't got someone in his ear telling him what to do. He's the one Carl looks to for advice. And then I suppose if you extrapolate that into the crossover, she turns up and there could have almost been an argument for her saying, why did I ever listen to this guy? Jeez. (laughs) He does not know what he's doing. He was really presenting a front when he showed up in my universe. (laughs) What an idiot. (laughs) That was a great episode and to this day it's still one of my favourites. In fact, it is my favourite of the show. I just think that the two of them bounce off each other so brilliantly. It's a good episode. So those are my highlights. A lot of them are quite high level. I don't think Supergirl ever really had many in the way of classic episodes. Most of their arcs were pretty rubbish. Rain had the potential to be a good villain. They ruined it. They almost did the Soviet Supergirl thing. What was the name of the arc in the comics? Red Sun. That was it. They almost did Supergirl Red Sun, but they didn't. They failed at that as well. So I think there's nothing really to look back on in terms of storytelling as such to celebrate because it was all kind of naff, to be honest. But we weren't watching for that. That's certainly not why I was watching. Another one of my favourite episodes was the musical one. Well, that was in Flash, though, wasn't it? Was it was it? a Flash episode. No, oh, never mind then. But no, it was, it's valid. I sometimes lose track of the crossovers. Darren Chris turns up at the end of an episode of Supergirl randomly and puts her into the musical coma that she's in, and then they go to oh, Earth that was to it, sm- yes. resolve it. Which is weird, yeah. because you get the resolution to her breakup with mon in a Flash episode that a lot of the audience probably won't have watched. Yeah. Awkward. I don't care because I watch everything. <laughs> That's fine by me, but I understand the barrier to that. Okay, so her and Mornell are together. They weren't last week. That's weird. And then her contribution to the crossovers was always great. I liked her dynamic with Oliver as it existed. Her dynamic with Kate Kane, the original Kate Kane, was really good. Yeah. That was about it. She didn't really interact much with anybody else. Good show. I'll miss it. I really will miss Supergirl. I think it was it's a nice beacon of positivity to start the day sometimes. Yeah, because sometimes that's just what you need. Yeah, it really is. So do you have any final thoughts on Supergirl before we wrap up? Just in general? Just in, in general, really pleased with how it ended. Yeah, it certainly went out on a high. It's not like it's just been euthanized after slowly deteriorating for years, <laughs> like many shows. It's been bright, it's been fun, it's been emotional, and I am genuinely going to miss it. On my review of the finale, the final image I put was the image of her on the giant TV screens that appeared on National City out of nowhere hmm. with a smile and the caption I put under was, I'm going to miss that smile. And I am. I'm really <laughs> going to miss it. Yeah. It's a show that has meant a lot to me over the years. Again, because Cara's life's a mess and so is mine. So there, <laughs> your connection there. It's meant a lot to me because of just the way that it was set up, the way the characters interacted, the world that it presented. Melissa Benoist, what a great lead. She's amazing. It's why the show is the way it is, I think, in a lot of ways. The other cast as well, but particularly her, I think she dug herself into that role and completely made it her own. And I'm not saying that it's untouchable. I'm sure Sasha Kelly will be great in the Flash movie if it ever comes out. I'm sure she'll be great. But it's going to be a different take. And that's fine. That's what DC does, right? They give you radically different takes on similar characters or the same character. But the way Melissa Benoist inhabited that character and... When you see her persona in public as well, there's a lot of similarities there. She is like a ray of sunshine in human form. And her held beliefs are the same as Kara's held beliefs, or they seem to be. Things like that. So yeah, I'm really just going to miss this time being spent with these characters. I know we're seeing Alex again. By the time you listen to this, we'll have seen her again. <laughs> it was like two weeks after the show ending mm-hmm. or whatever. You see her again three weeks after. Not enough time to miss her, really. And I'm sure we'll see Kara again. I'm pretty sure the Arrowverse will do one big pull at all the stops crossover before they decide to kill it off completely 
other than Superman and Lois because it's doing really well. And she'll be part of that. I'm pretty sure that we'll see her again. And I'm glad that the show ends in a way that we can see her again. She's still out there being a beacon for us all. And that's great. It's not that she disappears. It's not that she loses her powers. She's still out there. That's the message, isn't it? She hasn't gone. It's just we won't be watching her every week. Yeah, and I think that's honestly the, the best takeaway they can end the show with. Yeah, there you go. That was our discussion of the final season of Supergirl. Will it be our final ever discussion of Supergirl? Maybe not. Probably not. Hopefully not. Maybe we can come back and just talk about individual episodes at some point, just as a bonus episode or whatever. I don't know. Let's talk about the episode where the Flash turns up at some point. We'll do an episode on that at some point. Don't know when. We'll do it. Promise. But that was our discussion about Supergirl's final season. I want to thank Neil Stenson for the supplied music. Andrew, thank you for joining for this discussion. It's been great to pour over this with you. Always a pleasure. And if you enjoyed what you heard, then please do hit that subscribe button on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any major podcasting app. You can get us anywhere that you find your podcast. But you're listening to it already, so it's already in your feed. So great stuff. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave us a star rating and a comment. But Andrew, what star rating would we like? What would be our preferred star rating? A optimum number would be five. And I would severely hope that anybody listening would agree. Let's hope so. So yes, if you can leave us a five-star rating, that would be amazing. If you want to talk to us about Supergirl, the Arrowverse, anything else really, you can hit us up on Facebook or Twitter under Neil Before Blog, or you can leave a comment on neilbeforeblog.co.uk. And as always, we hope you'll join us on the next Neil Before Pod. <laughs>